Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Radio Days. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Here we feature mostly cop and detective shows, plus adventure, plus surprise. You never know, but it's the best from the golden age of radio. We'll guarantee that. For those of you who want non-stop crime buster and detective shows, you can now add 1001 Radio Crime Solvers to your podcast library. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. Brand new for 2023 and growing fast. Enjoy! The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima, best of all king-size cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A 30-year-old woman is missing. Three months pass before her disappearance is reported. There's not a trace of the woman. No lead to her whereabouts. Your job? Find her. In Fatima, the difference is quality. That's right. Fatimas are different. They taste better. Yet king-size Fatima costs no more than the cigarette you are now smoking. And because of its quality... More smokers are now insisting on Fatima than ever before. You see, Fatima contains the finest domestic and Turkish tobaccos, superbly blended. And Fatima is extra mild, with a much different, much better flavor and aroma. So compare Fatima yourself today. You'll find Fatima gives you all the advantages of extra length, plus Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. Remember, the cost of Fatima... Is the same as the cigarette you're now smoking. But in Fatima, the difference is quality. Next time, buy Fatima. Best of all, king-size cigarettes. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, June 9th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way back from the stats office, and it was 10, 18 a.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Hi, Joe. I've been waiting for you. Hi. Ma'am, I'd like to have you meet my partner, Sergeant Friday. Joe, this is Miss Daly, Ruth Daly. How do you do? How are you, Miss Daly came in to file a missing report on her sister, Joe. She already talked to missing persons, and they sent her in to see us. Oh, I have it, Chairman. Thank you. Well, what's it all about, Miss? I just started to tell Sergeant Ramirez That's here. That's Romero, ma'am. I'm sorry. Romero. Well, it's about my sister Bernice, Sergeant. She's missing. I wondered if maybe you people could help me find her. Well, what's your sister's name? Bernice. I guess you want a married name, Mrs. James Butler. Her description will be just about the way I look. Bernice and I are twins. Mm-hmm. When did your sister disappear, ma'am? In March. The first weekend in March. She disappeared on a Saturday. Well, that's three months ago, Miss Daly. How is it this wasn't reported sooner? Well, as a matter of fact, I halfway expected her husband to report it. I talked to him about it when Bernice was gone two weeks. He didn't seem too worried. Is there any reason for him not to worry? Well, there isn't a way. You see, Bernice has gone off before, about a year ago. She picked up and went to Arizona without telling anybody. 
When she came back, she said she just wanted to get away for a while. She didn't want to be around here. Well, how long did she stay away that time? Almost a month. Well, how about your sister's married life? she get along with her husband all right? Well, first five years they were married, it worked all right. Then it sort of turned sour. I don't know what happened. They used to be happy. Well, what was the trouble? Do you know? That's the funny part. I don't. Wouldn't even know who to blame for it, Jimmy or Bernice. Both of them started drinking a lot, pretty heavy. Seemed to me around that time, Jimmy began to get a little funny. I see. Has he ever been violent towards your sister, Miss Daly? I mean, has he struck her or anything like that? Oh, no. Really, Jimmy's kind of a milk toast character. Timid, skinny. Most of the time, afraid to say boo. Yesterday, I went over to the house to visit Jimmy. I tried to make conversation. He just sat in his chair reading a book. Every time I'd mention Bernice, he'd kind of look up and growl at me. Mm-hmm. I got sick of it. I put on my coat and started for the door. He followed me. Mm-hmm. Did you say anything at all? Yes. When I opened the door, I turned around to say goodbye. Yeah? He had this real horrible look on his face. He said it right out loud. Plain as day. What's that? He said, you'd be surprised if I killed her, wouldn't you? You'd be surprised. 10.40 a.m. We finished taking a complete statement from Ruth Daly regarding the disappearance of her married sister, Bernice Butler. Before she left, we got the business address of her brother-in-law. A broadcast and a missing bulletin was gotten out, and then Ben and I drove across town to have a talk with the husband of the missing woman, James Butler. We located him at work in a job printing shop on South Vermont, where he was employed as a journeyman printer. He was in his early 30s, thin, blonde hair, light complexion, about 5 foot 7, 125 pounds. He wore a pair of rimless glasses. Ben and I introduced ourselves and began to interview him. He was close-mouthed and not too cooperative. He seemed to resent every question we asked him. While we talked, he worked over a paper-cutting machine. You'll have to admit it's a little out of the ordinary, Mr. Butler. Your wife missing three months and you acting like she's been gone three hours. Did you hear me, Butler? I heard you. Well, what about it? Just a minute. Well? Uh, you know, it's not ordinary you're going away. I'm married to her. I've known my own wife. We talked to your wife's sister this morning, Ruth Daly. She seems to think you might know all about your wife disappearing. She does? That's right. In my way, i got to get that other set of cards. Oh, yeah. What do you think? I don't know. There's something wrong with him. Sure got a big grudge for somebody his side. I wonder what that girl meant when she called him bashful. Yeah, about as bashful as a wild boar in a plum thicket. In my way, I got to get in there. Yeah, go ahead. I haven't got any spare time to talk. I have to get this order out. It'll only take a few minutes if you'll be good enough to cooperate. I haven't got the time, that's all. It's almost your lunch hour, isn't it? Suppose we can talk then? Got no time then either. Why don't you talk to Ruth? She seems to know it all. Now, listen, that's about enough of this, mister. We ask you civil questions, we expect civil answers. If you think this isn't important, change your mind. Your wife's been gone for three months. Nobody's seen or heard from her, and it's our job to check it. Now, you can talk to us here or downtown. You take your pick. I have to finish up this batch first. We can talk out in the alley and back. I want everybody knowing my business. That's fine with us. You do what you have to do. We'll wait for you. Sure is aching for an argument, huh? Yeah. I wonder what his big trouble is. Maybe a hangover. Looks a little used up. Yeah, could be. If he had something to do with his wife's disappearing, you'd think he'd try to cover where he's at, and he doesn't seem to care what we think. Well, let's see what kind of a story he's got. Mm. Okay, it's this way, out the back. Well, go ahead. Yeah, what's the big deal? You ever been arrested, Butler? Nope. Almost a couple of times they couldn't get me. 
What kind of trouble were you in? They said they didn't get me. I'm not going to put myself in hot water. We'd like to find out how your wife was before she disappeared. Do you know of any reason why she'd go off the way she did? Any reason why she'd stay away three months without any word? No, I don't know any reason. Well, how about your relatives, your friends? You checked to see if she might be with one of them? They'd call if she was. You never checked with them? No. I think Ruth did. You have any big arguments with your wife, Butler? Around the time she disappeared, I mean? We had them all the time. She bothered me. She was too fresh. I beat it out of her. That's so. You got to. Give them a little freedom. They think you can take over. Nag and tell you what to do, what not to do. Sick of it. We'd like a straight answer here, Butler. Did you want your wife out of the way? What do you mean by that? I mean, do you know why she's missing? Could be a lot of reasons. Might know one. Did you kill your wife, Butler? It'd be silly to tell you that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Did you kill her? Only one way I'll say yes to that. Yeah? When you prove it. Well, it wasn't easy to understand. From the way it started, our interview with James Butler would get us nothing. We had no evidence against him, nothing to indicate definitely that his wife had met foul play, nothing but a suspicious remark he was supposed to have made to his sister-in-law, Ruth Daly. But once we'd left the print shop and got out in the back alley where he couldn't be overheard, he was full of information. Besides telling us that he beat his wife, Butler also admitted that he'd threatened her life on several occasions, twice in the presence of friends. He seemed to take some kind of a peculiar pride in admitting how violent he'd been with his wife. Ben and I took him downtown, questioned him further, and listened to him talk. He made veiled hints that he'd been involved in various criminal activities in this country and also in Europe, that he was a close friend with a half a dozen notorious underworld gang leaders, that he was ruthless and clever enough to dispose of his wife if he wanted to and still avoid prosecution. While we were talking, Ben had James Butler's name and description double-checked through the record bureau files. There was no previous criminal record listed for him. As far as we knew, at no time... Had he even been held under suspicion in a criminal investigation? The next day, together with Brian and Lopez from Homicide, Ben and I made the rounds of Mr. and Ms. Butler's friends, relatives, and neighbors. 4.25 p.m., we got back to the office. Oh, hi, Lopez. Hey, Ben, Joe, what's doing? Nothing great. How'd you two make out? It's yeah, a funny setup to me. I'd say the guy's a phony. Everybody we talk to, everybody who knows Butler, they all say the same thing. What's that? The guy's afraid of his own shadow. He's a milk toast. Nothing to him. And what'd you get? Well, about the same. Every housewife around the neighborhood out where they live, they all told us the same thing. The guy's a hen-pecked husband. His wife laid down the laws, and he follows them. Psycho case, huh? Must be. I don't know how else to explain it. Every time I asked one of their friends if Butler beat up his wife, they laughed in my face. Said he wouldn't even dare cash his check on Beatty. He had to bring it home. If anybody got beat up, it must have been him. Yeah, it sure tells a great story. He can make you believe he was a bluebeard. Did you get any different answers at all, Lopez? Yeah, one, maybe. You want me to take a look? Yeah, let's see. Uh, yeah, here. Uh, Mrs. Irene Brady. She's an anatomist Mrs. Butler. Uh-huh. Uh, she said the same thing about Butler, about him being a real mouse and all. And she told us about the dizzy things he'd been doing the last couple of years. Yeah, what was that? Well, four or five times she said he just went out looking for trouble, go in a neighborhood bar, insult some big Steve, or he'd get his face pushed in. He always picked big guys. Didn't seem to mind getting beat up as long as he could insult them. Yeah, not much doubt, I guess. The guy's ready for the nut for him. Well, apparently he's got a big beef with people who push him around. Maybe he figured if he could take care of just one of those people, he could even up the score. How do you mean, Joe? Well, Mrs. Butler, the wife, she's probably the one who gave him the worst time. If he's a little bit off mentally, that'd make him capable of murder, wouldn't it? Couldn't be, yeah. Maybe the wife poured it on real strong, drove him to it. Mm, crazy as a coot, that guy. Too many movies, mystery books. Oh, I got it. Homicide from Mel. Oh, yes, ma'am. How's that? Oh, when was that? Yes, ma'am. Yes, as soon as we can. Bye. 
That does it. What's that? That was his sister-in-law, Ruth Daly. Just told me she's positive Butler murdered his wife. Well, what makes you think so? Number one, she says Butler told her so. He admitted it to her last night. Well, it doesn't hold any more water than the rest of his stories. I don't know. The Daly girl says she's positive she's got the evidence to prove it. What's that? A murder weapon. Blood stains all over it. 4.45 p.m. And then I got in the car and drove out to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Butler, where we found the missing woman's sister waiting for us on the front stairs. She told us she'd been doing some kind of checking of her own through the house that afternoon. In going over the attic, she said she'd found a claw hammer hidden under a loose board in the attic floor. She said the hammer was covered with what appeared to be dry blood stains. She took us inside, up the stairs, to the attic. Careful of the steps, officers. It's an old house getting ready to fall apart. Yeah. Watch the step here, Joe. Yeah, I'm all right. Go ahead. Light's good and bright. That's how I happen to see a loose board. It's over here. Mm-hmm. Did you pick up the hammer, Miss Daly? No. I started to, but then I remembered about fingerprints and things. Just where I found it. Didn't touch it. Hey, you want a pencil, Joe? Maybe you can get it in the claw there? No, I think we can see it right where it is. Huh? Let's see. Uh, could be, huh? Bloodstains? Well, it sure looks like it. On the handle here, all over the head of the hammer. I knew it. I knew there was something wrong the day she disappeared. Hey, look at this, Joe. I just noticed. Hmm? These stains on the floor. Whole trail of them, see? Lead right for the door. Yeah, we better get the crime lab on and have Lee Jones run a benzidine test on him. What time does he usually get home from work, Miss Daly, your brother-in-law? About six o'clock. Don't know about today, though. How do you mean? Does he work late on Tuesday? No. But I wanted to make sure he wouldn't be home when I came over today. I called the print shop where he works. He's not there. Called again this afternoon. Jimmy hasn't been seen since last night. Mm-hmm. Is he in the habit of skipping work? No, he never does. I called every one of his friends I know of. Bernice's friends, too. I called them. The places he hangs around, nobody's seen him. Not since last night, since you talked to him. And you got no idea where he might be? No. Just like Bernice. He disappeared. <laughs> In the statistician's office of a metropolitan police department. Have you made the run on this one? WMA, five foot seven, hundred and sixty pounds, suspect is left handed, operates on foot. We punched up the master, the cards are in the machine. We'll make the run now. Okay, fine. There are many suspects to choose from. You're looking for one. When you have a choice to make, you want to be sure, and you can be sure of Fatima quality. That's why we ask you to compare Fatima with any other king-size cigarette. Side by side, Fatimas are the same in length and circumference. 85 millimeters long, one and one sixty-fourth inches around. And Fatima filters the smoke exactly the same long distance as other king-size cigarettes. But in Fatima, the difference is quality. Fatima gives you extra mildness. A much different, much better flavor and aroma. Remember, Fatima gives long cigarette smokers all the advantages of extra length, plus Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. Next time, insist on the best. Buy Fatima. Best of all king-size cigarettes. Tuesday, June 10th, 5.20 p.m. 
Ben got on the phone and called around town to check further on the whereabouts of James Butler, the husband of the missing woman. No luck. We called the office, and they got out a broadcast and an APB on Butler. We drove downtown to the crime lab, gave him the claw hammer that we'd found in the butler's attic, and asked him to run a benzidine test on the stains. We'd also made arrangements for Lee Jones to run similar tests on the stains we'd found on the floor of the attic. Three days passed. Butler was gone. There was no sign of him. The search was intensified. Another three days went by. Monday, June 16th, we got an answer on the APB. A phone call from the chief of police in Tulare, California. Yeah, James Michael Butler, WMA, 33 years, 5'7", 128 pounds. Blonde hair, hazel eyes. Hey, you got a North Hancock Street address down there that right? Yeah, that sounds like the man we're looking for. He's a real weird one, Freddy. Caused a little trouble at one of the taverns up here last night. Kept picking fights with the biggest truck drivers he could find. We locked him up after his third fight. He entered jail in an uproar all night. Wild one. What'd he do? Oh, shouting all over the place. Couldn't do anything with him. Uh-huh. Keeps telling everybody how smart he is. Yeah. Says he killed his wife, but nobody's ever going to find out. James Butler was returned to Los Angeles, where he underwent further interrogation in addition to a psychiatric test. The test showed that he was definitely abnormal, but he was still judgmentally competent. The crime lab's tests on the bloodstains found on the hammer and on the floor of the attic in the butler's home revealed that the stains were made by animal blood, not human. We questioned Butler about it, but we failed to get him to even admit he knew anything about the stains. He was released from custody, but he was kept under surveillance. A week passed. Two weeks. Nothing developed. Still no sign of the missing woman, Bernice Butler. Still no definite sign of foul play in connection with her disappearance. No definite sign that her husband was criminally involved in any way. Considering all the angles of the case, we were still inclined to figure that he fitted in somewhere. He had some direct hand in his wife's disappearance. We stayed on it. Nothing happened. On June 26th, the twin sister of the missing woman, Ruth Daly, met Ben and I at the office and laid out a plan she had in mind. She insisted we try it. You mean you want to work on his emotional nature and try to get some kind of an admission out of him? Is that the whole idea? That's it, Sergeant. I know what a nut he is about being dramatic. I know it'll work. That's possible, yeah. How do you figure to set it up? It won't be very hard. For one thing, you know my sister Bernice and I look quite a bit alike. Mm -hmm. People always take us for one another. Yeah. You can get Jimmy out of the house at night for some reason or other. I'll slip in and go upstairs and put on one of the dresses Bernice used to wear all the time. Mm -hmm. I'll sit there in the upstairs bedroom with just the hall light on. Just enough light so he can see me when you bring him upstairs. I'll even bring over Bernice's pet cat she had. Siamese. He always hated the cat. Mm, I don't know, ma'am. I'm not quite sure about it. Well, it might be worth a chance. It's not too orthodox, but maybe it'll work. If I know Jimmy, it'll work, Sergeant. If you can just warm him up to it ahead of time before you bring him upstairs. When he sees me sitting in that room with a cat, I know he'll think it's Bernice. We're bound to get some kind of reaction. That's better than we're doing. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Well, sounds like a movie script. I don't know. It's like she says. I guess we're bound to get a reaction. I know it'll work. I'm sure of it. Joe? All right. Let's give it a try. The following night, a few minutes before 8 o'clock, Ben and I got James Butler away from his house on the pretext of taking him downtown for further interrogation. We delayed long enough to make sure that Ruth Daly, the sister of the missing woman, had plenty of time to get into the house, change her clothes, and take her place in the upstairs room with her sister's pet Siamese cat. Then we started back for the house. We'd made arrangements to have Brian and Lopez from Homicide standing by concealed in the immediate vicinity of the house in case they were needed. 11.05 p.m. While we drove him back toward his home, Butler was talkative, but not too relaxed was the same line we'd heard before, how tough he could be when he wanted to, the same hints that he was an undiscovered killer. 
one of the more talented professionals in the deadly circles of the underworld. I came from Illinois originally, Cicero. You guys know how it is back there. You have to stay right up on your toes. Yeah. How long you been out here now, brother? You expect me to tell you that? I'm wise the way you guys work. You're not going to get me on questions like that one. I understand you do quite a bit of reading, Jim. You come across anything good lately? Nah, nothing lately. All the good books, they've already been written. Edgar Allan Poe, Stevenson, De Maupassant, Gogol. They know how to tell a good murder story. These new guys are a waste of time. Reading, that's all reading. That's what I like to do. Not that modern junk, only the best. You take some of Poe and Stevenson, for instance. I know those guys. That's yeah, so. Sure, I know their stuff well enough to tell you. I, I got whole pages memorized. How'd you like to hear some? Stevenson, maybe. All right, go ahead. I have to belie my nature. All men do. All men are better than this disguise that grows about and stifles them. You see, each dragged away by life like one whom bravos have seized and muffled in a cloak. If they had their own control, if you could see their faces, they would be altogether different. They would shine out for heroes and for saints. I am worse than most. Myself is more overlaid. My excuse is known to me and to God. But had I the time, I could disclose myself. That's out of Stevenson, you know. Pretty smart fellow, huh? Yeah, sure is. You've got a pretty good memory. I read those books all the time. Nothing better. Is the house all right? Yeah, that's right. Well, maybe I'll see you later, huh? Thanks for the ride. Well, I'll tell you, we'd like to come in the house with you, if you don't mind, Butler. One or two things we'd like to check over, if that's all right with you. It's all right, sure. Guess you ought to know by this time, huh? Nothing I'd hide in that house that you'd ever want to find. Come on, let's go. Sure dark out in there. A little bit chilly. Yeah. What do you want to check over in the house? Always one or two things. Just routine, Jim. We won't keep you long. Guess I ought to be a little burned at you cops by now, huh? Getting all this rousting. How about laying off pretty soon? Maybe I am getting a little burned. If you can prove something on old Jimmy Butler, prove it. If you can't do it, let him alone. Mm -hmm. We're just tying up a few loose ends here, Jim. There's nothing to get excited about. What's the matter? Did you get your front door key? I got it. My business, you learn not to forget anything. Can't afford to forget. Yeah, it's quite a big place you got, Butler. You stay here all by yourself? That's the way I like it. By myself. If you want to look at anything, you can look now. When you're through, I got some bourbon in the cellar. I keep a big booze cellar, you know. All first-rate stuff. What's the matter? Oh, nothing, Jim. Thought I heard a cat someplace, did you? No cats in this house. What do you mean you heard a cat? I hate the lousy things. I wouldn't have one. Didn't you tell us once your wife had a cat? I think it was you. You didn't like it much, did you? Killed the lousy thing. Got an axe and killed it. Them wife of mine used to drive me crazy with it. Cat hair all over the place. You know how it is. Got an axe and killed it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. There it is. I thought I heard it. Guess you got another one, huh, Butler? We'll get rid of that thing. I'll find him and get rid of him right now. Upstairs. I suppose the house makes you think of your wife quite a bit, doesn't it, Jim? What? Well, I mean, you spent so much time in it together, you and Bernice. It's got quite a few memories for you, I guess, huh? Find that thing if it takes all night. I'll get the axe and I'll find the thing. It's up here, all right. Maybe down the hall there. Bernice's room. She had the cat. What's it doing here? There's no reason for it. Could have wandered back in. Can we get more light in this hallway? I can't see anything. Cat could be anywhere. What's it doing here alone? The cat was always with Bernice, never left it. Oh, sounds to me like it's just around here, maybe through that door there. You think? It's Bernice's room. I killed a lousy cat. He couldn't be in there. Oh, might be it's just a cat out in the street, you know, in the side alley, maybe, huh? Mm-hmm. Probably not even in the house. Take a look in the room here. Mm -hmm. 
No. No, it ain't real. She's not there. She's not there. Don't hurt the cat. Not the poor cat, Jimmy. Don't kill him. Not both of us. Don't kill the cat, please. Don't kill two of us. You go away. You go away. You're not there. It's a fake. You're not there, Bernice. Please, Jimmy. Not both of us. Don't kill both of us. Some kind of a trick. Now, you go away, Bernice. You're dead and I killed you. You're downstairs. You're in the ground. You're deep in the ground. I killed you. You can't be sitting here. Please, Jimmy. Please. All right, Butler. Come here. No. Get away. You get away from me. She's downstairs. She's in the ground. I'll show you. You can't trick me. I'll show you. Grab him, Ben. Grab him. But I can't. I can't. Dear God. Come on, Ben. Downstairs. Yeah. I tried to grab him. Tried to. He broke away. Yeah. Lopez. Lopez. Here, Joe. Here. Did you see it, Lopez? Yeah. Good drop from the window. He came fast. Yeah. Not too pretty, huh? Uh, must be something, huh? How about getting a doctor? Yeah, he lost the doctors when he hit that sidewalk. There's only one thing left I know. Yeah? Call a priest. In his suicide leap from the top story of his house, James Butler died instantly on the pavement below. Afterwards, when the reports were made out and the deputy coroner removed the body, a special detail of men was sent out to help probe the grounds around the Butler home and also the ground directly beneath the house. The search was thorough. The ground was dug up foot by foot. We found nothing. Butler's last admission before his death that he'd killed his wife and buried her in the grounds adjoining the house seemed to be as empty and worthless as some of the other stories that he told us. The painstaking search for the body of James Butler's wife went on. We found nothing. Alive or dead, there was still no trace of her. Butler's friends and relatives held a modest funeral for him, and he was buried in a small cemetery south of the city. In Missing Persons Bureau, there were still no leads on the case of Bernice Butler. It was still open. Summer finally got to an end. The fall season came and went, and then Christmas and the holidays, and then back into January and February. On a rainy morning early in March, almost a year to the very day when the case started, we got a communication from San Francisco. It had come to the notice of the police through the county health department. In regard to your APB of June so-and-so last year, this is to inform you that Mrs. Bernice Butler has been a patient in the tubercular ward county hospital, San Francisco, since June 16th of last year. Apparently, her case was considered critical from the day she was admitted to the hospital. Last Thursday, she succumbed to the illness. Identification was established, next of kin notified, but no one claimed the body. She was buried at county expense. I trust this may aid you in establishing facts pertinent to her disappearance on... Well, how about that? Well, it doesn't figure, does it? Sooner or later, you get them all. How would you figure out that night we had Butler at the house? I mean, we had his sister-in-law in there, and he thought he saw his wife? Oh, who knows? Suppose he really had himself talked into it. He thought he committed 100% murder. Yes, he thought about it long enough till he convinced himself. Must have worked out something like that inside his mind. Mm-hmm. Imagine he lived right through it. Figured he really killed her. When it came for the punishment, he's ready to buy that. There wasn't any way out, so he jumped. Yeah, well, mixed up can he get, huh? That's too bad. All things considered, I guess he loved her quite a bit. Well, it doesn't seem to matter now what he did. Wasn't much of a chance either way. How do you mean? Well, the girl, TB on one side, maybe murdered on the other. Yeah. Either way, she had to die. The story you have just heard was true. 
Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On March 9th, the meeting was held in the office of Captain of Homicide, Police Department, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that meeting. And now here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you. Friends, we've spent about two of the past 30 minutes telling you why so many smokers coast to coast have switched to king-size Fatima. And they really have. Just listen to some of these brand-new sales figures. I'll give you a few of them state by state, alphabetically, just as they're listed here. Fatima sales up 92%, up 72%, up 107%, up 192%, up 69%. And so it goes, up and up. Thousands and thousands of king-size cigarette smokers are changing to Fatima. And there's a reason. Fatimas cost no more than the cigarettes you're now smoking. They filter the smoke exactly the same long distance as other king-size cigarettes. Yet there's a big difference. Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. Buy them tomorrow in the golden yellow package. Fatima, best of all king-size cigarettes. After locating Mrs. Bernice Butler in the tubercular ward in San Francisco County Hospital, final disposition was made of her case. Her late husband, James Butler, was cleared of any connection with her disappearance. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima, best of all king-size cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Stay tuned for Counter Spy, next on NBC. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.
The story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all king-size cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to juvenile bureau. A series of crimes suddenly starts among teenage children in your city. Robberies, burglaries, bodily assault. There doesn't seem to be any reason for it. The crime wave grows. Your job? Stop it. In Fatima, the difference is quality. That's right. Fatimas are different. They're extra mild. Yet king-size Fatima costs no more than the cigarette you're now smoking. And because of its quality, more smokers are now insisting on Fatima than ever before. You see, Fatima contains the finest domestic and Turkish tobaccos, superbly blended. And Fatima is extra mild, with a much different, much better flavor and aroma. So compare Fatima yourself today. You'll find Fatima gives you all the advantages of extra length, plus Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. Remember, the cost of Fatima is the same as the cigarette you're now smoking. But in Fatima, the difference is quality. Next time, buy Fatima. Best of all king-size cigarettes. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, April 10th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of Juvenile Bureau. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Captain Stein. My name's Friday. It was 10.27 p.m. when I got to 1335 Georgia Street, second floor, the squad room. Joe, is that you? Yeah, you ready? Yeah, half a minute. All right. I'm going to get my coat on here. Did you leave a note for McNamara? Yeah, all set. All right, let's hurry, huh? Yeah. Same neighborhood we had the trouble Monday night? Uh-huh. Sounds like the same gang, too. These kids are sure moving fast. Go ahead. Yeah. What is it this time? Movie theater on West Fremont. Small neighborhood house. Oh, mm -hmm. They had a crowd of 15 to 20 kids in there tonight. Mixed group, boys and girls. For no reason at all, they started to tear the place up. Did they do much damage? Well, I don't know. We can see when we get there. He told me on the phone the theater manager tried to quiet the kids down. Half a dozen boys piled all over them. One of them pulled a knife. They tore up a couple of seats up in the balcony, moved out into the lobby, smashed mirrors and lamps. They beat up one of the ushers. Lousy little punks. Where'd you park the car? Straight back. I'd give a right arm to know how this thing got started. We've never had much trouble from the kids in that neighborhood out there, not till this last month. Seemed to be going crazy. Well, it's not getting any better. Burglaries, car thefts, wrecking property. Somebody's going to come out on the short end if it keeps up. It's got to happen. Maybe it already has. When they were ripping up that theater lobby tonight, one kid got hurt. What happened? It's a 14-year-old boy. In the mix-up, he got shoved through a display case, plate glass. Cut up pretty bad? His eyes. They're not sure he'll see again. In police work, the standard law of cause and effect works like it does for everything else. When a crime's committed, there's a cause behind it. There's a reason for it. And when a group of normally well-behaved kids in an average residential neighborhood start running wild, there's got to be a reason for that, too. 
A month before, a rash of auto thefts, petty stealing, and public disturbances had broken out suddenly in the particular neighborhood. All of the incidents were traced directly to the teenagers in the area. Why the kids had suddenly decided to run wild, we didn't know, but the amount and the nature of the violations kept getting more serious. Juveniles who'd previously been picked up for petty thefts and placed on probation were now committing burglaries. Auto thefts in the area had jumped 20%. Misconduct and drunk charges against the teenagers, girls and boys alike, increased by the week. We had a fair idea what the root of all the trouble was, but so far we hadn't been able to trace it. 10.45 p.m., we got to the neighborhood movie theater on West Fremont and we went inside. The lobby was a shambles. Two large mirrors had been shattered, lamps and sofas overturned and broken. The lobby candy counter had been wrecked completely. The glass showcases were caved in, the popcorn machine was smashed, the soft drink cooler turned on its side. The last showing of the feature picture was still going on. We interviewed the theater manager in the lobby, a Mr. Clyde Barton. They got real foul mouth. One or two of the girls, too. Some of the language I wouldn't even use at a stag party. I got so mad I grabbed two of the noisy ones by the neck and told them to get out. That's when it broke loose. Well, what exactly happened? The whole crowd of them jumped out of their seats and piled on me. I fell back down against the stairs and I started swinging. I'll tell you the truth, Sergeant, I was scared. I didn't know what to make of them. They seemed like a pack of animals, wild. I happened to hit this one kid and I saw him pull out a knife and come at me. Mm -hmm. Didn't take me too long to get out of there. Kids or not, when a bunch of them like that come after you, you run. Yes, sir. You called for the police as soon as all this happened? You bet I did. Just as soon as I could get out into the lobby and into my office. I locked the door. I, I could hear them tearing the place up outside. Mm-hmm. Just look at that. Smashed up everything in sight. I have to have something like this happen. Look at this candy stand. Yes, sir. Well, how about some of the kids you recognize in that crowd, Mr. Borden? Oh, say, the last show's ready to break. Folks are going to be coming out. You want to step back here into my office? We can talk. They'll be out of the way. That'll yeah, be fine, sure, sir. Uh, pull up a chair for yourself, officers. Yeah, thank you. I just got the feeling there's something radically wrong going on with those kids. This is the first time you've ever had any trouble of any real size, is that right? Yeah. Well, once in a while, the kids fool around in the show talking loud, you know, but nothing like this. Oh, see, Fred, my usher, and the way they messed him up, brutal. And that little 14-year-old they shoved through the glass showcase... It'll be a real mess if he doesn't pull through. I was going to ask you, sir, about the kids in that crowd you recognize. You haven't known any of their names? Sure thing. I made a list of them while you were on the, the way over here. I got a half dozen of them more. That's another thing I can't understand. Yeah, what's that, sir? When these kids start running wild, no matter what they do, they don't seem to care if they're recognized or not. You'd think if they wanted to raise the devil, they'd go over to some other neighborhood, some place where people didn't know them. They just don't seem to care. Yes, sir. We've had the same report from a couple of other business people in the neighborhood here. Mr. Barton, you probably have a pretty fair opportunity to watch the kids around here from time to time. I mean, running the theater here. I mm, sure do. Most of them are in here once a week anyway. Some of the kids I've known since they were in knee pants. Well, have you any idea at all what's behind all this trouble? I mean, any real indication? Maybe I'm just the uh, suspicious kind, but I've got an idea, all right. Uh, here, I'll, I'll get that list of names for you at the same time. Uh, there, there they are. Seven names in all. Every one of those kids was in that gang tonight. I can give you a hand tracking down their addresses. Oh, thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, something else. Here's what I was talking about. What's this, sir? 
In that scramble in the lobby tonight, this little box fell out of one of the kid's pockets. One of the ushers picked it up, brought it into me. Have a look inside. Mm-hmm. Well? Mm-hmm. I don't know too much about it, Sergeant, but uh, I got a hunch. I don't think I made a mistake. Yeah. What do you think? No, sir, no mistake. It's marijuana. We finished interviewing the theater manager, Clyde Barton, and then we talked to the usher, Donald Masters, who recovered the small box containing the marijuana from the floor of the lobby. He told us he recognized the young fellow who dropped the box, but he wasn't sure. He said the boy's name was Harold Everson, one of the names which appeared on the list which the theater manager, Mr. Barton, had given us. Half an hour later, Ben and I located the Everson boy's home. It was a two-story frame colonial-style house in a better-than-average section of the area. The boy's father answered the door, a Harold Everson senior. We told him what we wanted. A little late to be making routine calls, don't you think? People have to get their sleep. Why can't you let it wait until morning? It's not a routine call, Mr. Everson. I'd like to see your son if he's home. Harry, what do you have to see him about? Well, do you have any idea where your boy spent his time tonight, sir? He said he was going down to the gym, play a little basketball, and he was going to the library. It's a school night. He had studying to do. I think maybe you ought to keep a little closer check on your son, sir. That's not the way we get it. What are you getting at? I trust my boy. He said he was going to the gym and then to the library. He's got no reason to lie about it. They had a minor riot at the neighborhood movie down on West Fremont tonight. Gang of high school kids ran wild and wrecked the place. What's that got to do with Harry? A couple of people recognized him among the gang of kids. They said he did his share of wrecking along with the rest of them. Couldn't be. It's a lie. Harry didn't go to the show tonight. He told me when he got home. He even had his books with him. He spent the night at the library. Uh, I'd like to have you take a look at this, Mr. Everson. Huh? This box here. Would you recognize this at all? Well, yeah. Same kind of box my stomach pills come in. Got a little acid condition in my stomach. I take these pills for it. What's all this have to do with Harry? I'm going to open the box for you, Mr. Everson. I don't get it. What is this stuff? Someone saw your son drop the box in the lobby of the theater tonight. The box contains marijuana. It's stupid. It couldn't be right. I haven't got that kind of a boy. I know it isn't right. Do you mind if we talk to your son? Maybe he can explain it for us. Just a minute. I'll get him down here. All right, sir. Have a chair if you want. Thank you. Sure a nice place, huh, Joe? Yeah. Beautiful furniture, isn't it? There's nothing like period furniture. Never goes out of date. Be just as much in style ten years from now as it is today. Mm -hmm. We better be sure and tag by Georgia Street Hospital on the way back and see how that kid's doing. You know, the one that was hurt at the show. Oh, yeah. This is my boy, Harry, officer. Oh, Harry? Hello. How are you, sir? Harry just told me, officers, he doesn't know what this is all about. He was at the library, like I said. Well, sure, I was there till they closed. Somebody made a mistake. I wasn't at the show tonight. But Harry, do you know Mr. Barton, the man who runs the theater? Yeah, I know him. Why? Well, he swears you were there tonight. So does one of the ushers. Who? A boy by the name of Donald Masters. He says he knows you pretty well. I don't know any Donald Masters. You go to the same high school together, son. You're in the same class. I told you, I don't know any Donald Masters. What about this, Harry? Huh? This box here. You recognize this? No. What's the matter, son? What is it, Harry? What's wrong with you? Nothing. I don't know whose it is. It's not mine. Was lost in the lobby of the theater tonight. Master says he saw you drop it. He's lying. I hate the kid's guts anyway. He's lying. But you said you didn't know him, son. What's wrong with you? What are you shaking for? Kind of a story you're trying to tell. I didn't mean it, Dad. <laughs> Kid got this stuff for me. I didn't mean to get it. I didn't mean to, Dad. It's beginning to look like I'm the dummy of the family. Take it easy, Mr. Everson. Harry, you're a liar. 
Jim got the stuff for me. That is the truth. I didn't buy it. You want him downtown, officer? Afraid so, Mr. Everson. I'd like to have you come down with him. Get your clothes on. Go back to your room and get your clothes on. Okay, Dad. Hard to believe. My son using marijuana. I can't tell you how I feel. I'm afraid there's going to be more folks feeling the same way before this is cleaned up. It'd be different if Harry didn't have a chance, but good home, good training. The boys had the best I could give him. Yes, sir. Wife and I, we never thought we had a worry in the world as far as Harry was concerned. Yes, sir. Maybe that's why it happened. Before we left the Everson house, we checked the boy's room and came up with another small box full of marijuana, which he'd hidden back in his closet. Besides Everson and his son, Harry, more than a half a dozen other teenagers who'd had a part in the theater brawl were rounded up and taken downtown along with their fathers for interrogation. By the time we finished our questioning and the teenagers had finished talking, we had most of the story pieced together. A story that had the parents so amazed that half of them thought the youngsters were making it up. The pattern was familiar enough for us to know that they were telling the truth. Almost two months before, word had gone around among the teenagers in the neighborhood that marijuana, along with various stimulating drugs, was to be had easily and in quantity for anybody who wanted them. Word was passed around that it was the new thing to do, the smart thing to do if you wanted to keep up with the crowd. In questioning the Everson boy, we found that he seemed to know more about the history and operations of the narcotics campaign in the neighborhood than the other boys did. I know one of the guys who first showed up with the stuff, named Johnny Demering. He's about my age, 17. I used to know him pretty well. How do you mean he was the first to show up with his stuff, Harry? What kind of stuff? Marijuana. Some of the other things, you know, yellow jackets, goofballs. More of the kids go for them than they do for marijuana. Do the youngsters know what these goofballs are made of, son? Do they know what they are? Well, it's dope, I guess. Narcotics. The kids get a big kick out of them. I guess that's all they care. Mm -hmm. Mr. Johnny Demering, does he sell the stuff around the neighborhood, Harry? Yeah, he was the first one. He's got a couple of other kids selling for him now. A couple of them are girls. They sell a lot for him. Johnny makes pretty good money. Yeah, I guess he does. Where does he get the stuff from, do you know? No, I wouldn't know that. Someplace downtown. Johnny knows a guy. He's never told anybody where he goes to meet the guy. Nobody ever goes with him. Was Johnny at the show with you tonight? No, he doesn't hang around with the kids much anymore. He's getting a little big time, I think. He's got his own car and good-looking girlfriend downtown. Says he's going to quit school next month. Mm -hmm. Where does Johnny live, son? Can you tell us? I don't know the address right off. I can check it in the phone book for you. How about the kids Johnny gets to sell the stuff? Can you give us their names? Yeah, okay. I think I can remember who they are. You going to bring Johnny in and talk to him? That's the idea, yeah. I don't know if you're going to find him right away. He probably heard about the trouble tonight, and Johnny's a pretty smart guy. I don't think you'll find him very easy. I think we'll find him. Nobody knows much about him. He never talks about what he's doing. He never tells anybody anything. Pretty smart guy. He told you. How smart was that? Complete statements were taken from each of the youngsters we brought in for questioning, and then in practically all cases, they were released into the custody of their parents pending action by the juvenile court. With the information we had at hand, it took us the better part of four days to round up everybody involved in the narcotics distribution system, which had been set up among the teenagers in the neighborhood by 17-year-old Johnny Demering. As for the Demering boy himself, he couldn't be found. We checked with his family, his relatives, his friends, all his known associates. We got out a want for him. Then we checked the car that he owned through DMV. We got out a want for that. No sign of the boy. Narcotics detail gave us a hand and got their informants busy trying to track down the source of the dope for which the Demering boy had been the only neighborhood distributor. We knew it went far beyond him. 
It reached to the same vicious men who make their money off the hopeless adult drug addict. The same vicious men who today are trying to build a new market for their wares among the young people of this country. Tuesday, April 29th, 2.30 p.m. Again? Right. June Bureau, Romero. Oh, yeah, Brady. Yeah, uh-huh. That's right, what's his name? Yeah, yeah, okay, right away. Right, go ahead. Brady from Narcotics. They figured they got our man. The Demering boy? No, the guy who pushed the stuff to Demering. Mm -hmm. His name's Jocko Harris. They found him in the county hospital this morning. Yeah. Somebody got a hold of him two nights ago and gave him a good working over. If we're lucky, we'll make it. What do you mean? He's not supposed to last out the day. 2.35 p.m. Ben and I left the office and went immediately to the county hospital where we were allowed to briefly interview the narcotics suspect, Jocko Harris. He was in a critical condition with a fracture of the skull. He gave us a statement in the form of a dying declaration. He admitted being the contact man for 17-year-old Johnny Demering, and he admitted also that he had kept the boy supplied with enough narcotics to keep the neighborhood teenage demand for the stuff fully satisfied. Seemed like a good kid. Never thought he'd turn. What do you mean, Jocko? How'd he turn? Why do you think I'm here? You mean he's the one who worked you over? Yeah. Where is he, Jocko? Do you know? No. Do you know where he's staying? Do you have any idea at all? No. Stole all my stuff. Every ounce. What was it, heroin? Yeah. Listen. Yeah? Get him. Fast. He's got enough junk to start a war. cruiser car of a Metropolitan Police Department. You receive a routine radio call. All units, attention all units. Pick up and hold for investigation the following vehicle. 1948 Ford, two-door sedan, black white sidewall tires. There are many cars that fit this description. You listen for more facts. This car will have extensive damage to right, front end. License number, 9 Robert 9, 707. In the 7 column, 9 Robert 9707 KMA367. Now you can pin it down to one. It's the same with cigarettes. There are many king size brands to choose from, but when you know all the facts, you'll make your choice Fatima. Here are those facts. Fatimas are the same in length and circumference as any other king size cigarette. 85 millimeters long, one and one sixty-fourth inches around. And Fatima filters the smoke exactly the same long distance. But in Fatima, the difference is quality. Fatima gives you extra mildness. A much different, much better flavor and aroma. You get all the advantages of extra length, plus Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. Fatima, best of all king-size cigarettes. Definitely the best quality in its class, but the same price as the cigarette you're now smoking. Next time, buy Fatima. Wednesday, April 30th, 9 a.m., the hunt for 17-year-old Johnny Demering was intensified. To our knowledge, because of the information we gained from narcotics peddler Jocko Harris, the teenage youngster had a large store of high-grade heroin, which we knew, because of his inexperience, he was unaccustomed to dealing with. In his hands, the narcotics immediately became a lethal weapon. We knew that Johnny Demering had only one market to deal in, only one type of customer he was acquainted with, the teenager. 
In previous transactions, we knew that the youngsters received only a low-grade type of narcotic, highly diluted. We knew that if Demering succeeded in dispensing the highly concentrated store that he had on hand, and the juvenile customers he served tried it on themselves, it would very likely result in death. 3 p.m. Wednesday. Despite all our efforts, Johnny Demering and the store of high-grade narcotics which he'd hijacked from Jocko Harris were still missing. Wednesday, 12 noon, we began rechecking every one of the possible sources that might lead us to the suspect. One of them was the boy's mother, Mrs. Frances Demering. We talked to her at work. She was employed as a mullograph operator in the mailing department of a large downtown department store. Not since the last time you talked to me, Sergeant. I haven't heard a word from my boy, nothing at all. Have you heard anything? Well, yes, ma'am, in a way. We've got an idea he's still somewhere in the city. That's why we figured we'd come back and talk to you again. Have you been in touch with your relatives in town recently, Miss Demering? I mean, those that Johnny might possibly contact? Yes, well, there's just my sister and my mother. Yes, ma'am. I guess it just wasn't to be right from the start. Johnny's father ran away, you know. Tried my best after that. Never seemed to be enough. Well, there's no getting away from it. A boy needs a father. You can try all you want. They still need a father. Some kind of discipline. Mm-hmm. How about the relatives you have out of town, Miss Demering? Any word from them at all about Johnny? No, Sergeant, nothing. Would you excuse me, please? This run here is finished. I have to get it off the machine. Sure, I'll go right ahead. Yes, a terrible thing, Johnny getting mixed up in all this. Seems no matter how you try, it's never enough. Never enough. Do you have any idea at all where Johnny would most likely go in town if he didn't want to be seen, Mrs. Demery? Where he'd go? No, I wouldn't know that, Sergeant. First place, Johnny's never really been in trouble before. Well, how about Johnny's school friends, ma'am? Would there be any one of them he might possibly contact in the jam? None that I haven't told you about before, I don't think. Evelyn. She's the only one I suppose Johnny'd go to if he needed help, if he was in trouble. That's his girlfriend at the high school, isn't it, Evelyn Maxwell? Yes, that's right. Sweet girl. How about a girlfriend Johnny was supposed to have downtown somewhere, Mrs. Demering? Would you know anything about her? Nothing really, no. Name was Betty, I think. You have no idea where she lived downtown? No, I don't, Sergeant. Well, all right, ma'am. Thank you very much. Appreciate it if you'd notify us if you hear anything about your son at all. All right, Sergeant. Thank you. Tomorrow's Johnny's birthday, you know. I meant to tell you. Always expect Johnny home on his birthday. Seems no matter where he is, how he's tied up with his school or sports or something, Johnny always makes it home for his birthday. I see. I wonder how it'll be tomorrow. He's never missed once. Not once. Well, if he shows up, I guess you can count on one thing, ma'am. What's that? He's going to have to miss next year. 2 p.m. Ben and I picked up a glass of milk and a hot dog for lunch, and then we continued making a check of Johnny Demling's closest friends. Next in line after his mother was Demering's high school girlfriend, Evelyn Maxford. We located her at her home, a tall, attractive brunette, nicely dressed and well-mannered. She seemed unusually nervous as we interviewed her. I haven't heard a word, Sergeant. I know tomorrow's his birthday. The mother's expecting him home. I know he won't come, though. Sure of that. How are you sure, miss? Well, I just know that's all. I'd like to ask you again. Yes? Are you sure you haven't heard from Johnny Demering recently in the past two days or so? No, that's what I told you. Don't you believe me? Do you know why we're so anxious to locate Johnny, Miss Maxwell? Well, I think so. It's about the narcotics business. They say Johnny had a hand in it. He was selling those things to the kids. I still don't believe it myself. It's a lot more than that, the way it stands now, Miss Maxwell. What do you mean? Well, when he was at school, Johnny was kept supplied with narcotics by a man named Jocko Harris. He's what we call a pusher, kind of an in-between supply man in the narcotics trade. Mm -hmm. Well, two nights ago, Johnny caught up with this Harris. He beat him up badly enough to send him to the hospital with a fractured skull. And then Johnny stole every bit of narcotics that Harris had in his room. Some of the strongest stuff you can buy on the market. That's why we want Johnny, Miss Maxwell. I don't think I understand. What does it mean? 
It means that most of the teenage kids Johnny's been supplying stuff to have been getting fairly weak grades in narcotics. If he gets some of this stuff to them and the kids start taking it, it might prove too strong for them. If they take too much of it, it could kill them outright. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you see what we're up against. We've got to find that boy. We've got to find him soon. Couldn't you talk to his mother? Maybe she could tell you something. Well, we already have, miss. She couldn't tell us anything. That's why we halfway depended on you. Why do they have to put it in my lap? Why does it have to be me? I like Johnny for a while. I don't know what to think now. Well, have you heard from him, Miss Maxford? Now, there's no reason to be afraid. You'd probably feel a lot worse if something happened to one of the high school kids, wouldn't you? Miss Maxford? I got a call from him yesterday. Johnny. He wouldn't tell me where he was. I asked him, but he wouldn't tell me. What else did he say? He knows everybody's looking for him. He doesn't know about the stuff that he stole, though. I'm sure of that. He doesn't know what it could do. Did he make any dates with you? Did he want to see you? Yes, he wants to see me. He wants me to meet him tonight. Where? Excuse me. Yes, go ahead. Hello? Yes? I don't know. I don't really. What? Seven o'clock, all right. Yes, yes, I'll meet you then. All right, goodbye. That was Johnny just then. He wanted to make sure I was going to meet him tonight. When? Seven o'clock tonight, right near Westlake Park. Which side, miss? The west side, Sergeant. I hope to God it's not true. What's that? The narcotics he stole from that man. You said they were powerful? Yes, we did. Johnny's been taking them for two days. 6.45 p.m. Together with two other men from Juvenile Bureau, Hurst and Ty, we drove near the appointed spot along the lake in Westlake Park where Evelyn Maxford's meeting with the teenage suspect, Johnny Demering, was to take place. We staked out at a reasonable distance and Miss Maxford went ahead to the meeting spot. As far as we could see, there was no sign of Demering. Somebody on the opposite side of the lake was playing a phonograph. The music came over faintly across the water. We watched the Maxford girl cross the long stretch of grass down to the lake. She approached the shore. We saw her stop and look down. Sure, let's go. Come on. Yeah. We ran all the way as fast as we could get there. When we got close enough, we found out the reason for the scream. He was lying face up on the ground near the edge of a small clump of trees close to the water. He was a good-looking boy, dark hair, good build. Took only one look and you knew right away he was too young to be dead. You could argue for a week, but you wouldn't change it. He was dead. The girl stood over him, her face in her hands, crying. No marks on the body, Joe, none at all. That must be it, huh? An overdose? That's the way it looks to me. We better get her out of here, hadn't we? Yeah. Miss Maxford? Come on, Miss Maxford. Yes, Sergeant. It's all right. It's all right now. We'll have one of the other men drive you home. We can take care of whatever has to be done here. He was a good boy, Sergeant. He was smart. How'd he ever get started in such a thing? How'd he ever make such a mistake? Well, he's got the best excuse in the world, miss. Yes. He was 17. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On May 2nd, a coroner's inquest was held at the county morgue, Hall of Justice, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that inquest. And now, here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you. Friends, it makes us very happy to know that so many of you have switched to king-size Fatimas. Now, this actual sales report I have here shows that in state after state, more people are smoking Fatimas every day. In the first state, Fatima sales are up 97%. The next state sales, up 114%. Still another state, 117%. And still another, 69%. Oh, 
Well, those are just a few. Now, in my opinion, that can mean only one thing, that thousands and thousands of smokers, coast to coast, agree with what we've been saying. Fatima is the best of all king-size cigarettes. If you haven't smoked them yet, remember this. Fatima's cost no more than the cigarette you've been smoking. Fatima gives you all the advantages of extra length, plus Fatima quality, which no other king-size cigarette has. So tomorrow, buy Fatima. At the inquest, the coroner's jury ruled that 17-year-old John Andrew Demering had administered himself an overdose of narcotics and thus had taken his own life. All others involved in the juvenile narcotics ring, a total of eight persons, were tried and convicted under the State Narcotics Act. They received sentences as prescribed by law and are now serving their terms in the state penitentiary. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Fatima Cigarettes, best of all king-size cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Stay tuned for Counterspy, next on NBC. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Radio Days, your home for the best of Golden Age Radio, when radio was king. If you enjoyed tonight's show, please do take a moment and send us a review. We always appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. Until next time, this is your host, John Hagedorn. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon at 1001 Radio Days. And one note, don't forget to pick up 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. That's 1001 Radio Crime Solvers. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.